Election and predestination. Bring them up in any church crowd, and you're bound to stir up all kinds of conversation. Welcome to Through the Bible for our Sunday Sermon with Dr. J. Vernon McGee. Now, our message today hits right at the heart of the controversy with this message, Who Are the Elect? Scripture is really clear that God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, and that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself. So, the question isn't, does God elect? But instead, who are the elect? That's what we'll discover as we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 21. And while you find your spot, I want to read a couple of letters from our fellow listeners, this time in Nepal. Now, when you talk about Nepal, most people immediately think of Mount Everest. I know I do. While it's true that it's known for its mountain ranges, eight of the world's ten tallest, in fact, are in the Nepal's Himalayas. But there's so much more happening in that country. Some call Nepal the world's last Hindu kingdom. With more than 80% of the Nepalese people following the Hindu religion, life for Bible-believing Christians often isn't easy. Government restrictions are imposed on any non-Hindu groups, and Christian believers can even be fined or imprisoned for sharing the good news of the gospel. But wouldn't you know it, the number of believers in Nepal is growing. As one listener recently shared, I come from an Orthodox Hindu family, but we are from a lower caste. One day I heard your program and understood God's grandeur and His work for mankind. I understood that in Christ there is no discrimination. God made us equal. This knowledge changed my life. I now study with you regularly and share my knowledge with others. I no longer see myself as unworthy, only loved by God. And then here's another great story from Nepal. I am an uneducated woman, but was very active in my family's religion. One day I heard your program on the radio and was shocked. Was someone really talking about Jesus? At first, I was angry, but I liked the way the preacher talked and the music was soothing. I found myself learning more and more. After two months of listening regularly, I wanted to go to church. I told a neighbor who took me. I was attracted by the people in the church and began to sneak off to attend regularly. If my family found out, I'd be disciplined. So I waited and began to pray for the first time, the first time to God. I was hoping that my family would hear your program and be interested, but that has not happened yet. However, as I listened to your programs, I decided to believe in Jesus without fear and with full confidence. I have since been baptized and have never been happier. It is my fervent prayer that my whole family will come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Please pray with me. Well, we know that God is mighty to save, isn't he? And so today, let's pray that God will use his word to draw more Nepalese people to himself. And like this listener, may they respond without fear and with full confidence in his son, Jesus Christ. And then we got time for one last letter. It says, My name is Karuna, and I have listened to you for a long time. I like your program very much. Sometimes when I read the Bible, I find it very difficult to understand. However, listening to your program helps me understand what I am reading and strengthens me spiritually. I give thanks to you and will pray for you. Please pray for my husband. He is in the army, so he is not able to go to church. Well, let's pray for all those who study God's word with us around the world. Lord, the message of the cross for so many people seems like foolishness, yet we proclaim it so that some may be saved by your grace. So bless your word now, Lord, in Nepal and in our neighborhoods. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's Through the Bible Sunday Sermon with our teacher, Dr. J. Vernon McGee. He begins now in 1 Corinthians 1. I'm directing your attention to three verses of Scripture where they are pertinent to our subject today in this section that I read, beginning with verse 22, 
For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, and under the Greeks foolishness. But under them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, obviously, this morning we're not talking about the recent election, either of Republicans or Democrats. We're talking about a different group of the elect. We're in a section here in 1 Corinthians, this very beginning, where Paul is addressing himself to the primary problem in the Corinthian church. And that primary problem was that there were schisms and strife. Those are the two words that he used. In fact, the very first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, that's the section that carries the burden of this argument and thesis. Now, Paul's answer, and when you have Paul's answer, you have God's answer. Is Dr. B.B. Warfield, one of the greatest giants intellectually of the Christian faith, in a past generation says, whatever the Word of God says, God says it. And this is God's answer to this problem that was in that local church of that day. The church was fractured by party spirit. There was three great men that God had given to that church and the other churches, Paul, Cephas, and Apollos. They were the human instruments that God was using there. And the message of all three of these men, which they brought to Corinth, had a unifying quality and power in it. It produced a fusion rather than a faction. But the people in Corinth, that is, the, the believers, began to gather around these individuals. And that unifying message, is, as Paul defines it here, he calls it the gospel. He calls it the cross of Christ. He calls it Christ crucified. He emphasized, as these other two men did, the centrality of the cross. Or using modern parlance today, these men were Christocentric in their message. That is, they preached Christ, and they preached him crucified. Will you listen to Paul? In verse 17 he says, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Do you notice that this is the method of Paul? It was the method of these other men, that he preached not in the wisdom of words. And you notice it's words, plural. And he said, rather than the wisdom of words, it was the cross of Christ, and that's singular. And the plural and the singular put in juxtaposition here is not done accidentally by Paul, but with a very definite purpose. Because when you have wisdom of words, you have debates, you have dialectics, you have divisions, you have, di you have differences, you have opinions, you have theories. And sometimes you hear somebody say, I had words with so-and-so. Well, that generally doesn't mean friendly. It means you had a difference with them. 
And Paul says, I didn't come with a new theory, or these men didn't introduce a new theory, or a new dialectical approach. We didn't come with the wisdom of words, but we came preaching the cross of Christ, singular, if you please. The, and that produces unity and oneness. Now, it had an effect, though. This is tremendous. Will you listen to this? For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it's the power of God. Now, the very interesting thing is this message that unifies believers is a message that divides the world. The Lord Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace at this time. I've come to bring a sword, a division. And this is the division. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us that are saved it's the power of God. Will you notice this? This message divides mankind into two groups. I have a little book. The title of it is The Cross Divides Men, and I'm not publicizing it this morning. Don't misunderstand me. And I'm not going to preach that sermon. I want to return to this verse, though, before we finish the message of the morning. But the thing I would like to emphasize at this point is that this message of the cross will divide the world into two groups, those that find in it foolishness and those who find in it the wisdom and power of God. And there's a unity in both groups. There is a unity among believers. There is a unity today among the lost. The great Dutch artist painted the picture of the last judgment. You've seen the picture. It's a famous picture. And there is the throne of God, the great white throne judgment. And the lost are falling down into a lost eternity from that throne. And as they do, they cling one to another. That's the unity of the lost. There is the unity of the saved, if you please. Now, will you notice, I want to come directly now to our thesis of the morning, for the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. Now, Paul here divides mankind into two great ethnic groups. I think probably I ought to turn that around and say it like this, that Paul recognizes that there is a twofold division in humanity in his day. There were the Jews, the Greeks means Gentiles here, Gentiles and Jews, Jews and Gentiles. And this was the a division that was both religious and philosophical and ethnical, racial, if you please. Will you look at these two groups for just a moment? The Jews require a sign. The Jews represent religion. They represent a God-given religion, if you please. They felt that they had the truth. Will you listen to Paul as he speaks to them? In the epistle to the Romans, listen to him. Behold, thou art called a Jew. Rest us in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will. Provest the things that are more excellent, being instructed or catechized out of the law. Thou art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness. That was the position of the Jew of Paul's day. He, were, he had the truth, he thought. 
and his religion, a God-given religion, had gone to seed, and it was nothing in the world but an empty ritual. That's all. The power was gone in it, and they knew it. And expressing that, the Jew was asking for a sign. The Jews require a sign. Iteo means ask, but here it means demand. They demanded a sign. And have you ever noticed how they approached the Lord Jesus? They asked for him, of him a sign. Listen, Matthew 12, 39, But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. Then again in Matthew 16, verse 1, The Pharisees also with the Sadducees came and tempting desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. Listen to him. He answered and said unto them, When it's evening, ye say it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. In the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. O ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky, but can ye not discern the signs of the times? A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. There shall no sign be given unto it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas, and he left them and departed. Again, in Mark 8, verse 11, And the Pharisees came forth and began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. John 6, 30, They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then, that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? They were hounding his path, asking for a sign, and all the time he was performing miracles. And when we studied the Gospel of John, you will recall that I said that I believe the Lord Jesus Christ performed thousands of miracles. There were literally thousands of blind who'd had their eyes open, thousands of lame that were walking. And I have a question to ask, what kind of a sign did they want? They were asking for a sign. What sign do you show us? You seek after a sign. And therefore, they, they missed it. They missed it. They were looking for a sign. And they had the greatest. Look at the Greeks for a moment. Paul says the Greek seek after wisdom. The Gentiles. May I say that the Jew represent religion. The Gentile, or the Greek here, represents philosophy. The Jew represents a ritual. The Gentile represents rationalism, and you have both of them in so-called Christianity today. Liberal Protestantism, rationalism, Romanism, and other groups are ritualistic. That's the directions that Christianity is gone. The two directions, always seeking a sign, or else going in for a dead ritual. And so we find that the Greeks were seeking truth. The Jews thought they had it. The philosophers, and philosopher means a lover of wisdom, they were searching and scanning the universe for truth. And when they came to any conclusion, it had to conform to human reason. It had to be rational. It had to be logical to them. And therefore, they were seeking truth. About uh, 400 years before Christ came, the Greek nation threw up on the horizon of history a brilliance of mind, an artistic accomplishment in many fields that still dazzles and startles the world. 
There's been nothing that can correspond to that period that you can put in three centuries. And then it fizzled out, and I mean fizzled out. Under Pericles, Athens became a great philosophical, intellectual, artistic center. A great culture was raised. You go back beyond him, Anaxagoras, the philosopher, began to seek for an answer to this universe. What's truth? Thales came along, and I can remember back in my college days, and this is all I remember, Thales thought the secret of the universe was in water. There were others that thought it was in the atmosphere. Now men think it's on the moon. I heard one of the most brilliant scientists in this country today, he was, I was present at the Biltmore when he's given an award, he sits in this congregation when he's on the West Coast, he travels from the East Coast to the West Coast, he said to me, why do they want to get to the moon? I asked that question. Spending, but he says, if they can only get a handful of dirt off of the moon, they think they can find the explanation of the universe. Man is still seeking for truth. May I say to you that that age died. That was the school of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, the peripatetic school, the Stoic school, the Epicurean school, brilliant. Then darkness came intellectually, and there was 2,000 years of sterility and stagnation. Then there was Bacon and Descartes and even Hobbes. Then you have a rebirth of thinkers, and there was a brief period of brilliance, and like a skyrocket it went up and then went out. And then the age of decadence set in. And if I this morning may be permitted to venture a judgment, I would say that right now we are in the darkest period of intellectual decadence the world has ever seen. We are even letting a computer today do our thinking. And the computer does a better job than the man. I saw a cartoon, and it was a good one, two scientists up in front of this great computer, and they were little bitty fellas. And one of the fellas had reached in to get his final report. And the word was, we don't need you anymore. May I say to you, we are in an age of decadence again today. And man's looking for truth. Man's today is trying to find truth. And he's looking in every direction. And he still has no answer. When Bacon wrote his thesis on truth, he began it like this. What is truth? said the jesting pilot. Oh, I debate with him about whether pilot is jesting or not. That's beside the point. But what is truth? Philosophy today is still asking the question. And my friend, it has no answers to the question. After 2,600 years, man with all of his vaunted intellect has no answer. Problems of life and of this world. Listen to Paul. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? What has he done? What has he produced? What is his answer? Oh, you can push a button today and get most any comfort you want. That doesn't solve the problems of the human heart. 
the old definition of the philosopher. The philosopher is a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that's not there, searching for truth today. The Greeks seek after wisdom. They were seeking for some formula, some theory, some prescription that would bring happiness and joy to life and solve the problems of man and lift him out of the muck in the mire. They have no answer. And what was the result of all this? Listen to Paul, verse 23 now. But we preach Christ crucified under the Jews a stumbling block and under the Greeks foolishness. Under the Jews a stumbling block. May I say the, the Jews were looking for a sign and they found in the cross a stumbling block. Scandalone is the Greek word. We get our word scandalized from it. They were scandalized at the cross of Christ. They found out that Jesus was not a sign shower. He wasn't giving them signs, although they had the greatest. He was not a waypointer even. He was not a deliverer on a white charger putting down the power of Rome. He was Christ crucified. And that was an insult. You mean to tell me that you're presenting to our nation a man on a cross and you're offering that to us as the salvation? You don't like the sign. You don't care for it. That's a sign of weakness, not power. That's a sign of defeat, not victory. That's a sign. That is an abominable sign. We want something of the glory of God. Not a man on a cross. Don't care for it. Listen. Listen to Paul in Romans 9, 33, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, but whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Now the Jew said, I'd be ashamed. I'd be ashamed to turn to a man dying like a criminal on a cross. Not me. You've got to offer me something better than that. Give me a sign. Listen to Peter, First Peter 2, Unto you therefore which believe is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the headstone of the corner. Now listen, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. It was a stumbling stone to the Jews because they were looking for a sign, and that cross was humiliation. That cross was weakness. That cross had no message for them whatsoever. And they turned from it. The Greeks, will you notice? Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, but under the Greeks it was foolishness. And the word in the Greek is moron. <laughs> Moronic. It's stupidity. You mean to tell me that a man dying on a cross 
It's what I need. That's an absurdity. Give me some little clever cliché. Give me a motto. Give me a banner. Give me a philosophy to live by. But utterly preposterous and ridiculous. You mean to tell me man on the cross? In Rome, they have found a caricature of a figure on a cross with an ass's head. And that's what Los Angeles thinks of that cross today. Man hasn't changed. They still ridicule him. And we're again beginning to see cartoons appear ridiculing that cross. It's foolishness. It's absurd. Now Paul's going to bear down on philosophy because he was a philosopher. Don't forget it. But when he got to Corinth, he made a tremendous change. It's in Acts 18.6. Let me read it. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, that was in the synagogue, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I'm clean. From thenceforth I will go to the Gentiles. Now Paul made his break in Corinth. He said, From here on, I fulfill my ministry. I have been called as an apostle to the Gentiles. And down the streets of Corinth, there walked men of every race under the sun. It was the great commercial center. Ships had come in there from everywhere. And Paul saw this great mass of perishing humanity. He said, from here on, I go to them. He went to them. And since they were looking for some little system, some little philosophy, some little religion that was clever, now he dwells on it. Can a philosophy lift a man out of the cesspool of this life? Well, the answer is, it never has. There is no example of a people anywhere who've ever been lifted up. There is no example of Platonism being taken to the heathen in any spot on the earth, and Platonism lifted them out of heathenism into a civilized culture. My friend, history is speaking to you today. Will you listen? Paul now goes on in verse 21, For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And I'd like to rescue this verse here from a misunderstanding because this is a cover-up for a great deal of foolish preaching today. And Paul doesn't say that God is saving men by foolish preaching. In fact, he's actually saying the opposite here. And don't miss it because it's very important. It's not foolish preaching, but it's the preaching of foolishness. And the preaching of foolishness is preaching the cross. Did you know that my message this morning is a message that does not conform to the pattern of this world? I wonder if you know that. That I'm not this morning presenting a ritual, and I'm not presenting some rationalistic system. I this morning am presenting a crucified Christ. That's all. World outside says, You mean that He can help me? He can save you. He can rescue you. 
He can finally bring you to heaven. It's not the method, foolish preaching. It's the message, cross. Now, maybe you disagree with me. Maybe you say, McGee, Los Angeles does not reject it. There are churches on every corner. Right. They'll reject the message. Look at the religious page of yesterday or any Saturday of any of our cosmopolitan papers and notice how many places. Signs, signs, signs. And that's the direction fundamentalism is going today. Oh, we want a sign. He'll give you none. My brother, he has no sign for you. And then look at the wisdom of the world. Look at the philosophies that are being presented today. People said as it was strange when a great many ministers, especially those with their collars buttoned in the back, started marching. What else did they have to do? They had no cross. They had no crucified Savior to present to mankind, so they march. And doesn't it look pretty ridiculous to you this morning, even the anti-poverty program? Oh, isn't, isn't mankind with his philosophy today, isn't he in a mess? Wisdom of the world. I sat at lunch in a downtown club this past week with some businessmen. I told several of those men that right on the frontier of Watts we have a school and that Watts today needs the gospel and so does Beverly Hills. But it's difficult to get people today interested in presenting the gospel for it's the only thing that can lift these people up. Jews, scandalous. The Gentile, it's absurd. It just happens to be God's method of saving man. Will you listen now? Paul introduces a third group, a new group. Listen to him. But unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. There's a, another class of mankind. They're taken out of Jews. They're taken out of the Gentiles. And they're called here the called. The called is the word. And they are the elect. Now, the call are not those who just heard the invitation. They are those that the Spirit of God Reveal that that cross is the wisdom of God and the power of God for salvation, and they turned to it. And it transformed their lives. It took 12 men, rugged fishermen, some of them. One of them could even blaspheme, and I think they all could. They had a ritual. They went through it transformed the lives of 11 of those men, and it revealed who the 12th one was, for the cross will divide. It took a brilliant young Pharisee with one of the best minds that probably has walked this earth, this young Saul of Tarsus, proud, a leader, and it put him down in the dust on the Damascus road, and he found in that cross the power of God, and it transformed his life. That man brought into the city of Corinth, that city of licentiousness and wickedness, he brought this gospel where philosophy was being spun, where there was religion galore, and it reached out and brought in men and women and transformed their lives. In Ephesus, where he wrote the epistle, 
the great religious center that had religion, it reached in there and brought out a company of people, changed their lives. For 1,900 years now, the cross has been lifting men up. And I want to say this this morning, very humbly, but we have an advantage this morning over Paul. Paul was very close to the cross. I can look back now 1,900 years, and so can you. And for 1,900 years, that cross has had a tremendous effect upon men. I wish this morning I could give you quotation after quotation. Let me just take one. Michael Faraday has been called the greatest name in science. He is the greatest scientific experimenter that the world has ever seen. He said this, but why will people go astray when they have this blessed book of God to guide them? When he was on his deathbed, reporters came in. They were permitted to have a brief interview, and one of them said, Mr. Faraday, what are your speculations now? He looked up and, and then with a very alert mind, he said, I have no speculation. I am resting on a Christ who was crucified for me and rose again the third day. Speculations? I have none. 1900 years, that cross has been changing the lives of men and women. Now will you let me come back to my verse and I'll be through? For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it's the power of God, and I'll have to change that. The word preaching is logos, it means word, and I like that because Paul has spoken of the wisdom of words, now it's just the word of the cross. I think he means the gospel, for the gospel of the cross is to them that perish its absurdity, but unto us which are saved, it's the power of God. I can't paint, but an artist in Chicago heard me mention this years ago, and she painted the picture and has won several awards with it. The picture is this. I would paint a picture with a background of a field with not one sprig of green in it, just earth. I would make the cross in the shape of a great plowshare coming down through that field, and it would be turning the dirt on one side and on the other. And that's what that cross has been doing for 1900 years. It's been coming down through this world, turning mankind on this side and on that side. My beloved, it's what you think of the cross that'll determine who you are. A young couple on their honeymoon went to France, to Paris, and of course to the Louvre. They didn't know what the Louvre was. They paid their two francs, they went in, found out it was an art gallery with a lot of other very wonderful objects to look at. They hurried through because it was meaningless to them, and when they came out the styles, and when you start through the Louvre, you've got to go through, brother. And it's a long ways through. You need roller skates, and you can just make the turns. And I can see that young couple as they go in here, and they go in that room, and they say, my, won't we ever come to the exit? And finally they go out. And one turned to the other and said, it's ridiculous to charge two francs to see all of that old junk. Back of them was an art lover. 
He tapped them on the shoulder. He said, young people, I couldn't help but overhear what you said. I come to this art gallery every day, and I would like to say this to you. When you come here to this art gallery, it's not on trial. You are on trial. And what you think of this art gallery doesn't change it one whit. It's already established, but it will tell who you are. It's told you who you are. My beloved, what you think of the crucified Savior this morning doesn't affect him one whit, but it does tell who you are. Preaching of the cross is to them that perish absurdity. It's ridiculous. But unto us that are saved, it's the wisdom of God and it's the power of God. Who are the elect? Who are they? Give me three more minutes and I'll tell you whether you are one of the elect or not. In fact, the, the matter is, I let you tell whether you are or not. You will have to answer it, not me. You'll know in the next minute. Don't try to look over God's shoulder and see if your name's written on some book. That's preposterous. He doesn't let you see the book. Well, I says, I wonder if I'm the elect. I can tell you whether you're the elect or not. I believe this morning it can be as accurate with you as placing a litmus paper in a beacon of acid, knowing whether it's acid or not. Old Testament has this. Isaiah 53 speaks of a Savior that was a substitute. He has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrow. He was wounded for our transgression. Then it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone, everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all, all of us, you, you, and out yonder on radio, you. After Isaiah 53 comes Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 opens up. Notice, though, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. Everyone. Huh. Argue with me about election today. It's a legitimate, sincere, honest invitation to every man, woman, and child here this morning and listening in and on top side of this earth today. Ho, everyone. And he means it. But wait just a minute. Everyone that thirsteth, thirsteth. You have a thirst in your heart today for God, do you? Do you have a thirst in your heart today for righteousness, to be right with Him? Do you have a desire down in your soul today to be a better person than you are this morning? Do you want to be lifted out of the muck and the mire? Do you? Oh, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. We preach Christ crucified. He's a stumbling block. He's foolishness. 
But what is he to you? What is he to you this morning? Listen to him again in John 7, verse 37. It's the Feast of Tabernacles, and they've come to the end of it when they went down and got barrels of water out of the pool of Hezekiah. They brought it up to the temple. They pour it out all over the floor. It's a ritual that speaks to them of the fact that God provided water for them in the wilderness. But Paul says that rock was Christ. Listen to him. He stood up there that day. He says, If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. Any man. It's you. That's you. That's you up yonder. Any man. Any man. Don't argue with me about election. That I've got to look over God's shoulder to see if my name's on the book. It's in your heart today, my brother. You make the decision. If any man thirsts, let him come unto me, and you'll have to exercise your will. What do you think of the cross of Christ? You answer. Then you'll know whether you are the elect or not. For those that are called, he's the power of God, and he's the wisdom of God. Henry Ward Beecher in his quaint manner said, The elect, they are the whosoever wills, and the non-elects are the whosoever wants. Who are you today? Who are you today? Are you one of the elect? You can be one. If you look to him and see in that cross, that crucified Savior, that's God's wisdom. The wisdom of this world, you see, and the word there is wisdom of the age. You know, back in Plato's day, they thought they were smart. We know today they really weren't. And even in the dark ages, they thought they were smart. And the Victorian era, they thought they were smart. And this space age thinks it's smart, but it's going to pass away and there'll be another age. And it'll look back on this one and say it's foolish. But the wisdom of God, my friend, has stood for 1,900 years. And that cross is still God's way of saving. If the cross sounds like foolishness to you, then our prayer today is that this message would cause you to re-evaluate your own opinion. We believe the cross of Jesus Christ is the power of God for our salvation because Jesus died on that cross in our place. You can read more from Dr. J. Vernon McGee about Jesus on our website, ttb.org. All you got to do is click on the banner at the top that says, How Can I Know God? Or just call us at 1-800-65-BIBLE and we'll send you a few free resources. Now, during his sermon, Dr. McGee mentioned his booklet, The Cross Divides Men. You can download your free digital copy today at ttb.org. Just look for the free booklets in the resources section. And you can listen again to today's sermon, Who Are the Elect, online as well. Just go to ttb.org forward slash Sunday Sermon. If we can help you find any of these resources or anything else that's available on our site, just call us at 1-800-65-BIBLE or email BibleBus at ttb.org or write to Box 7100, Pasadena, California, 91109. In Canada, Box 25325, London, Ontario, N6C, 6B1. 
I'm Steve Schwetz, inviting you to join us on this station or on ttb.org for more of Dr. McGee's great teaching in 1 Corinthians this week as we continue our five-year study through the Bible. Now may God bless you as you walk with Him in His Word. Jesus Join us each weekday for our five-year daily study through the whole Word of God. Check for times on this station or look for Through the Bible in your favorite podcast store and always at ttb.org.